Our passage today is in Hebrews 5 and 6, and if, and if you like to study and discuss and debate difficult passages, well then, you've come to the right place on the right morning, because we've got that. And to the rest of you who don't like to debate and dig into all those controversial things, today's your day too, because it's in the Bible and we need to talk about it. So either way, it's good you're here. So everyone wins today. In our passage this morning, you can turn to the end of Hebrews chapter 5, we'll start in verse 11. Uh, in our passage today, three themes are going to come out. One is a warning, a warning to some of us. Uh, are we right with God? And a second theme is assurance for others of us. We can know that we're okay with God, that we are secure with Him. And a third theme is that our trust, it's on the topic of trust, our trust and hope in Jesus will grow, can grow, should grow, because God is completely trustworthy and true to His Word. He's the great promise keeper. So we'll start in chapter 5, verse 11, and the background is he's been talking about the high priesthood of Jesus, but now he presses pause, and the topic comes back again next week in, our, in chapter 7, but for now he pauses with something very important to say. Chapter 5, verse 11, we have a great deal to say about this, about the priesthood and these other deep things about Christ, and it's difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Now, everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. Chapter 6, therefore, let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. This is because, to their own harm, they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding Him up to contempt. For the ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it and that produces vegetation useful to those for whom it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed and at the end will be burned. Even though we are speaking this way, dearly loved friends, in your case, we are confident of things that are better and that pertain to salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have demonstrated for His name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. Now, we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end 
so that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. We'll pause there. We'll finish the rest of the chapter in a few minutes. But starting in chapter 5, verse 11, he stops this conversation about the priesthood of Christ with a very strong, no-holds-barred, very blunt message, a warning to them. And it seems to me, and we'll see this later on, I believe he's speaking to a small percentage of the people gathered in the church. But it's still a strong warning to some. Some of them, he just says very plainly, you're lazy, you're immature, you're like spiritual babies. You need to grow up in the faith. And it's not a pleasant rebuke, but it's needed because these people have heard all that they need to hear about the gospel, about Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah. Remember, these are, he's writing to Hebrew Christians, people who have a Jewish background and have now embraced their Messiah But some, it seems, have just gotten lazy and have not grabbed hold of these truths. And so then, beginning in chapter 6, verse 1, he calls them to greater things. They've neglected six foundational doctrines of the faith. They need to grow up in them. They need convictions. They need to be convinced of these things in their hearts. But they're not. And interestingly, though, these six things, these six qualities are also part of the old covenant to Israel, using different terminology. And again, he's writing to Hebrew Christians who are having this pull to go from the new covenant of Jesus Christ back to the old ways. And that fits with the overall theme of the letter, that they are starting to revert back to the old practices and not just adding them, but really rejecting what they've heard about Christ. And then we get to verse 4. And now here the controversy begins. The big debates begin. One of the most puzzling passages in the New Testament. Some of you have asked me and the other pastors about passages, this passage particular, like, what is going on here? Bible students and scholars have debated these three verses, 4, 5, and 6, for centuries. So we're just going to take a couple of minutes and examine four common ways that these three verses have been interpreted over the centuries. The four are, it's referring to a believer who loses his salvation. A second view is it's talking about a believer in Christ, but it's a hypothetical situation. It can't really happen, but but it's a warning. And a third is a believer, but he's under severe discipline from the Lord And the fourth view would would say, no, this is talking about someone who doesn't believe in Christ. So let's look at each one of these in more detail. The first one, the first view is a believer who loses his salvation. What this view would say is that verses 4, 5, and 6 is talking about a genuine Christian who now has gone completely rogue. Not just had a bad week, you know, like I doubted and I, I didn't live very well this week. I wasn't walking by faith. But this is talking about someone who even publicly has just renounced Jesus and said, you know what, I, don't long, I no longer believe this. I reject Jesus. And so this view is that this person has now lost what he once had, truly had. He's no longer a child of God and now he can never 
return. Now, admittedly, if we read only these three verses, I can certainly understand the argument because that's what it seems to be saying. It fits. But there's at least one key principle of understanding and interpreting the Bible that we have to bring into mind here. We have to look not only at the immediate context of any verse or set of verses, but also the broader context of the Scriptures as a whole. And so we should ask here, what does the rest of the Bible, including the rest of Hebrews, have to say about that topic? Can a true, genuine Christian lose his salvation? Because it's always important to interpret the less clear passages like this one with more clear passages. So let's apply that to this one. I believe that scriptures clearly teach that if you genuinely have believed in Jesus Christ, you acknowledge him as the eternal son of God, as the great high priest, as the only savior of the world, as the great forgiver of sins. If you've acknowledged that, embraced that, received that, then you are secure in the arms of almighty God. You cannot ever be unsaved. You cannot ever be unborn again. You cannot ever again experience condemnation for your sins. And it's not difficult to find passages on that. Let me give you just two. Ephesians 1, in Him, in Jesus, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment. It's the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of His glory. This is telling us on the day we believe in Jesus Christ, we are sealed with the Spirit of the living God until the day that Jesus returns, the day of our salvation, our redemption. John 10, Jesus' own words, verse 28. Jesus says, I give them, those who follow Him, those who walk with Him and believe in Him, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. No one, not even ourselves. And there are many others, Romans 8, the last third of that chapter, Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5, about God choosing us before the world was even created. So based on these and so many other scriptures, I'm convinced that view one here the view of this in, of verses 4, 5, and 6 is not a biblical option. If you are a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, you cannot lose your salvation. So then we should ask, well, how do I know if I'm a true believer? We'll get to that. As for the other views, I've, I believe views 2, 3, and 4 are all valid options from the Scriptures and Bible students and scholars over the centuries have debated those, and I think there's merit to all three. View number two, I, ca I call it the believer, the hypothetical view. And this view acknowledges the argument I just made, that a Christian cannot be unsaved. He cannot lose his salvation. However, hypothetically, if a Christian could lose his salvation, there would be no provision for repentance. And the thought here is 
that the author of Hebrews is making a rhetorical argument. That if a genuine Christian, someone who has the Spirit of God and has been born again, could actually reject Christ and so lose his salvation, there would be no turning back. There's no provision for repentance again. So the argument is hypothetical. It's like saying, if the sun doesn't rise tomorrow, horrible things are going to happen. Well, that would be true if the sun wasn't going to rise, but we know the sun's going to rise. So the author here with this argument is the author is crafting a harsh warning to wake up, to shake these lazy, sleeping Christians who are just kind of, kind of starting to wander from Jesus. And he's waking them saying, do you know how serious this is? Jesus is your only hope. He says this even though he knows they can't lose their salvation. And I understand the argument here. I think it makes some sense and some very respectable Bible students hold this view. Personally, I don't see what this, is, that this view is what the author is saying, particularly when we look at the context of Hebrews, the other four warning passages. This is the third of five. In, the other ones are in chapters 2, 3, 10, and 12. Let's go to view number three. This is, uh, I'll call it the, a believer, but he's under severe discipline from the Lord. And this view holds that the author is speaking to true Christians. They really do have the Spirit of God in them. They've been forgiven before God. They've been adopted by God into His eternal family. But this person has moved from a position of true faith to a more hard, a calloused heart, and is on the verge of rejecting all that he knows and is believed. And so he is experiencing the stern discipline from his heavenly father. Even though he won't lose his salvation. So the warning here is, dear Christian, turn back. Jesus is the only way. Why would you go there? Why would you put yourself in a position to experience your father's heavy hand on you? What good is that? Where's the glory in that? And there's merit to this view. The fourth view I call the unbeliever view, it's the view that I lean towards, is that the author here is speaking to someone who looks like a true Christian, but actually is not. Perhaps they've prayed a prayer once to Jesus. Perhaps they've come to church many times They've read the Bible a lot. They've served in a ministry even. They've, they've loved being with the people of God. They've heard sermons on sin and judgment and the resurrection. And this person has been so exposed to Christianity and has gotten so close to actually embracing Christ. Yet in his heart, he's never truly believed never truly entered into the family of God and been sealed with the Spirit of the living God. Years ago, my roommate, before I got married, my roommate and I had a friend named Bill. And Bill was very active in our church. Uh, he had professed Christ. He said he believed in Jesus Christ. And he was active in our church, in our small group, and he seemed to be genuine about his faith in Jesus. But months later, I remember the day he sat down with my roommate and I, and he just said, you know, he just simply doesn't believe this stuff anymore. 
He doesn't believe that Jesus is the way. He doesn't believe that man needs a Savior. And my roommate saw this more clearly and more quickly than I did because he spoke with an alarming tone to our friend Bill. And he graciously but firmly warned Bill that he was at risk of losing, of rejecting true life. This was no small matter. Now I ask even today, was Bill ever truly born again? I tend to think not. Only God knows the heart. In this view, this view number four, this person has been exposed to all the glory of the gospel, but he's now reconsidering all that. He's on the verge of just throwing it all away. And the warning is here, if you reject Jesus, dear friend, God will deliver you over to your heart's desire. And it makes me think of Romans chapter 1, a very serious section there. In the middle of that section, beginning in verse 22, it says, Claiming to be wise, they, these, these who have rejected Christ, became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. So idols re resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the Creator who is for, praised forever. Amen. What this larger section says is to those who hardened their hearts against God like Pharaoh. If you were here last fall, we talked about Pharaoh in Exodus. To those who hardened their hearts against God... He will give them what they want. He will turn them over even to a greater hardness. And so in view number four, this person is sternly warned, don't, please, we urge you, don't go there. So let's step back for a moment and look at all four of these views. Regardless of which view we hold, and I hope you don't hold view number one, but the other three views... The warning of this passage is strong, and it still stands. And there may even be a few of us in this room, or a few of us watching online, that are described by this passage. You, are, you have heard it all. Maybe we even think you're a Christian, but you're on the verge of rejecting it all, of turning your back on all that we've looked at, all the gospel is in Hebrews and so you are warned, don't go there. Don't reject Christ. Turn to Him. He is our only hope. Seek Him. Believe in Him. The stakes could not be higher. Because the entire book of Hebrews makes it clear, Jesus is unlike anyone else. No one else is sent from heaven like Jesus no one else is the creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth. No one else is both deity and, and human, the, the, the God incarnate. No one else is the great high priest who died for the sins of the world and who ascended with his own blood into the heavenly holy of holies and defends us and secures our salvation for us. So Hebrews repeatedly warns us and urges us Keep looking to Jesus. If you reject him, there is no other hope. 
It's like I shared four weeks ago on Sunday, a story from the Gospel of John, and I've been thinking about it almost every day since then. People loved hanging out with Jesus. I mean, it was cool to hang out with Jesus. Cool miracles. You got fed in these, all these cool miracles, fish and bread coming out of baskets. It was amazing. But then in John 6, Jesus spoke some difficult things, some hard things, and people didn't like it. And so many of those who were following him around left. They just turned their backs and they left him. And so Jesus, seeing this as a teachable moment, gathered his 12 disciples and he said to them, you don't want to go away too, do you? And Simon Peter, I love this. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. I love that. It's just so simple. Lord, where else can we go? Who else offers life like you do? So from this stern passage here, particularly verses 4, 5, and 6, an application here so far is we need to be diligent. Or to be more blunt, like the author, stop being lazy. You're spiritual babies. You need to have convictions. You need to believe what is true. You need to hold on to those foundational truths. You need to truly know Him. You have nowhere else to go. Eternal life and hope is at stake here. Your Christian faith ought not to be a hobby. It is your life. Be diligent about these things. Grow up in Christ, to say it bluntly. Well, then in verse 9, and here's what makes me think that he's been talking of a minority of people in the gathered church. Because in verse 9, he changes his tone. In spite of this severe warning he gives, he has confidence that the people, by and large, have, have something much better, better things. And he, he's basically saying, be encouraged. The Lord sees how you love him as you serve his people. Verse 10, I love that verse. In fact, it says God would be unjust. God would be evil to forget the love you've shown to him. And he urges them here to keep, keep pressing on. Keep going in your faith. It's, it's worth it. It's true. Persevere, for that's how the men and women of old walked. He's giving us a glimpse ahead to chapter 11, which is all about those people. But keep going, waiting for the fulfillment of the promises of God found in Jesus Christ. In verse 11, he wants them to be assured of their salvation. And I think of this as the theme verse of this chapter. He says, we desire each of you to demonstrate, to show the same diligence versus laziness, the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end. He just says, we, just, we want to see you keep going. This is all true. Keep, keep pressing on. Well, he uses that word, full assurance. And we need to ask, how do we find full assurance that we really belong to Christ? That we are born again, that we're in His family, that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Well, Hebrews, along with the rest of the New Testament, calls us to such assurance in three ways. 
The first one is our confession. The second one is our fruit. And the third one is our perseverance. Our confession is simply what we confess. What do you claim to believe? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he's the Savior of the world? Questions like we asked our baptism candidates three weeks ago. It's that simple. What do you believe? What do you confess with your mouth? It's just starting with the basic creed. If you say you believe in Jesus Christ, well, that's the starting place. And second, the second part of our assurance is the fruit of our lives. Because it's one thing to say that, but it's another thing to demonstrate it. Are you walking the talk? You can look at the whole, or the chapter 2 of James, the book of James, or 1 John chapter 3. Now let me be clear, our, our fruit does not save us, but it is evidence of the root of our confession. Genuine faith, genuine confession looks like something. And if I'm not walking at all like Jesus, and yet I confess that I believe in him, if there's little to no fruit in my life, shouldn't you ask me, Brad, are you really sure you believe what you say you do? And third part of our assurance is our perseverance noted throughout this book and actually through the rest of the New Testament. It simply means that we're walking in our confession and in this fruit to the end of our days. Not perfectly. Only the Son of God did that. But the general pattern of our lives is we're pressing on day by day by day. I'm not worried about 40 years from now, but are you walking today and do you have plans to walk with Jesus tomorrow? That's perseverance. And like the fruit, this perseverance doesn't save us, but it is the evidence, it is the proof that we really truly believe what we confess And ultimately, God is the one who sustains us. We don't have to exert a bunch of self-effort. Philippians 1, I love what Paul says. He says, he's confident that God who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until Christ returns. So we can and should have assurance that we truly do belong to Jesus and that he is our true hope by what we confess, by our fruit, and by our perseverance. And an application here out of these few verses 9 through 12 is this, real simple, is just take heart, be encouraged, stay strong in your heart. God is for you. He knows your confession. He is at work in you to bear that fruit and to help you be sustained in persevering to the end. And I see this in so many of you, and it brings me such joy to see you. You're, 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 you confess Jesus, you're walking with him, you're going after him day by day, sometimes through some very hard things. Be glad. God is active in you. Rejoice today. Be encouraged Now let's get to the last half of our passage here. Let's read verse, chapter 6, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. And quoting from Genesis 22, he says, I will indeed bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. 
For people swear by something greater than themselves, and for them a confirming oath ends every dispute. Because God wanted to show His unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, He guaranteed it with an oath, so that through two unchangeable things, His promise and His oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope, the hope of the gospel, as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters, this anchor enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. And Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This short little section here ought to bring you great encouragement and strength this coming week. What we see here is that God is absolutely true. He will never lie. And to Abraham, he made a promise. He says, I will do this. And then he swore an oath and he says, I swear I will do this. He only needed to say it once, but for our sake, he said it twice. Through a promise and through an oath. And he promised Abraham back in Genesis 22 that he would bless him mightily and cover the earth with his descendants and bless all the nations of the earth. And we know now that blessing was through Abraham's one great descendant, Jesus Christ. The gospel is the blessing to Abraham. And now all the nations have been blessed through Abraham's one great descendant. God fulfilled his promise 2,000 years later after Abraham because he never lies. If he says something, he will do it. And we need to stop our doubting and simply trust him. Lest we call him a liar. And we can trust the son first and most importantly for eternal life. And we can trust him for everything else that we encounter. And I love verse 19, this image of this anchor. Picture a huge ship on the ocean. These massive steel links attached to this gigantic anchor. And picture this anchor wrapped around you. And it extends up into heaven where Jesus is. Into the heavenly temple. And you are firm and secure in your Savior. Because God is true to his word. He was true to Abraham. It has come true in the person of Jesus Christ and it is still true now 2,000 years after that. We are secure. We are assured because Jesus, by the true word of God, is the, our great anchor, our great hope. And ultimately, our assurance is not about having a perfect faith. It's not about never having doubts. Our assurance comes from a simple trust, a simple faith that God always does what he says he will do. God is our assurance. And there is no need to doubt. And an application here today is very simple. It's just trust him today. Today, just trust him. You open up your Bible and what it says is true. 
You simply need to trust him. Whatever you're facing today, some small stressor in your life or your need for salvation, whatever it is you're facing, honestly, we need to stop doubting God. Stop doubting our salvation. Stop doubting he cares. Stop doubting he will provide for us in the days ahead. Stop doubting he has good plan for us. He has promised life and light and forgiveness and resurrection and hope through his son. And doubly, he has sworn, I will do it and I swear I will do it. And no surer word could be given and we have surety in the son. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that your word is sure. What you promise you will do. And you have done already through your son. The hope of the world. The anchor for our souls. Hallelujah. Admittedly, Lord, our our, our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. So would you, I don't even need to ask this because you will, but hold on to us tightly. Keep us looking to you. Give us energy. Give us the, the focus to reject all of our laziness in our faith and to diligently seek after you, our only hope. Help us to see you as you truly are and very simply with childlike trust to say, I believe you. I know we'll face many pressures and temptations even this day. Temptations to stir up doubt and, and distractions that can take our eyes off you. So help us to trust you today and to never let go. And most of all, we thank you. You will never let go of us. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen.